0: The views expressed on this show by guests and the host, on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 truth. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of 9 11 Freefall. I'm the host, Andy Steele, and today we are joined by Graham McQueen. He's a scholar and a researcher. He received his PhD in Buddhist studies from Harvard University and taught in the religious studies department of McMaster University for 30 years. While at McMaster, he became founding director of the Center for Peace Studies. Uh, after which he helped develop the BA program in peace studies and oversaw the development of peace building projects in Sri Lanka, Gaza, Croatia, and Afghanistan. Graham was a member of the organizing committee of the Toronto hearings held on the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and is a co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. He's the author of several books and papers, including the one that we'll be talking about today. So let's go ahead and bring him on into the stream here. Graham, welcome back Hi, to Nine Eleven 11 Freefall. Hi, Andy. It's always great
1: to be here. Thanks so much.
0: Well, it's great to have you. And I know that our staff, people, I know when I mention I'm bringing you on this week, they get very excited. You're very well known and have contributed a lot to this important cause we're all a part of here. Um, so now the latest contribution is this part two to uh, the article that you wrote with Ted, our Director of Strategy. It's titled... Uh, this is the, the, the part one is titled how 36 reporters brought us the twin towers explosive demolition on nine 11. Uh, and in that article you watched 70 hours of coverage. So let's just step back for a minute to part one before we get to part two, what was the process that you underwent as you watched 70 hours of 9/11 <laughs> coverage and, uh, what kind of standard did you set down when you listened to all these reporters and their accounts?
1: Well, i got to say it's it's um, tiring, meticulous work. <laughs> I sometimes like to think of myself, as I look back on my life, as a broad thinker, you know, who who has a global analysis and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but the truth is most of my important articles have been highly detailed <laughs> studies, you know, counting things and stuff, and um, I guess I feel okay about that because uh, although it may not look exciting initially, it's it's work that lasts. It, it endures because it's based on primary sources, and people can go and check it if they want. It's not speculative at all. So what happened in this case, you don't mind me being a little bit autobiographical, do you? Go right ahead. Okay. <laughs> so years ago, I started off my 9-11 uh, dissident career, so to speak, by studying the oral histories of the New York firefighters. And I found that the great majority of them uh, experienced explosions at the time that these towers began to be uh, destroyed. And and that really raised questions about the whole structural failure hypothesis, the official narrative. Now, I knew from early on that there were other sources uh, that you might call important, actually crucial primary sources, sources of data that we should be mining, we should be studying, we should be examining. And one of them is the same-day news coverage on TV. That was absolutely crucial in getting the world, especially the U.S., but everyone else, too, on board this official narrative and on board the war on terror. And yet it didn't seem to me that people had studied it carefully. And uh, so I, I began looking at that very early. But it wasn't until I met Ted Walter and began talking to him about it that um, I really decided to go along with <laughs> Ted's very ambitious plan because I was looking at Fox News and you know, CNN and stuff and he said, why don't we look at it all? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, that's fine, however much continuous footage from the day of 9-11, you know, that we possibly can find because some of it's gone, of course, but some of it's been preserved and let's download it all and let's divide up our tasks get our questions in mind, and we'll study the whole damn thing. <laughs> I was um, a little bit cowed by that initially because I was not in good health and I couldn't see how I was gonna do this, but we divided up the task. I would say in part one of this uh, two-part article, Ted definitely uh, carried the ball, but in part two, I, did my, uh, I was able to carry out my responsibilities. So we now have what can be thought of as one, large project in two parts, where we study television coverage of 9-11, the coverage on 9-11 itself, on a number, actually 11 different networks, cable news stations, affiliates, and so on, finding all the continuous footage we could find, and we went through it meticulously. Again, dividing up our tasks, and where we found things that were important, we would transcribe them word for word and we would record it all. It's not one of these articles where you can just make a reference. You can assume that all the transcripts of that coverage exist somewhere and just make a reference to it. No, no, as far as I know, nobody has transcribed all this stuff. And therefore the article you write will inevitably look long and cumbersome and have all these appendices because we have to give people the primary source data that otherwise they wouldn't have and let them make up their own minds about what's going on. So that's the background. Now, let me say a little bit more. When I first studied firefighter stuff years and years ago, back in 2006, uh, I didn't know for sure whether the official narrative of 9-11 was false or whether it was true. And so my goal was quite simple. I wanted to know what had actually happened on the day and what the eyewitness evidence said about that. By the time Ted and I came along to this big two-part article, our goals were somewhat different. We had both been uh, studying 9-11 for so many years, not just the eyewitness evidence, but, you know, the physical evidence, the physics of the collapses, all that stuff. Um, We both had spent years on it. that We thought, you know, this has been shown beyond all reasonable doubt, by this I mean the official narrative, to be utterly false. This was a propaganda operation. This was a psychological operation. So, this study will not just be undertaken to find out what really happened and whether the official narrative was right, although, of course, it will bear on those issues, but it will be, in a way, a st- our study of a psychological operation. What is it? How does it work? Because we think it's very important that people understand this. That, you know, of course, a- engineers and architects and researchers of all kinds will continue to do their kind of uh, work and present evidence, but we can't go into this evidence naively. We have to realize this is a psychological operation. Uh, It was very evident on the day of 9-11, but it's still going on, and everything we do has to be undertaken within that context. So I would say this is a two-part article on how the official narrative, even though it was contradicted by lots of eyewitness evidence from journalists on the ground how it somehow got established so that by the end of the day of 9-11 on all major networks and news stations everyone agreed that this had been Islamic radicals who had smashed planes into the buildings and brought them down. So how did that shift happen? How was the official narrative established? This is a really important question and this is the kind of thing we are trying to do.
0: Yeah, I don't think there can be any doubt that there's a psychological operation going on. On the day of September 11th, in the week following and in the years following, and you can see this especially when people like yourself, like so many others in the movement can't stepping forward. I would say around 06, 07, uh, the corporate media went into hyperdrive trying to attack anybody that raised uh, the questions about September 11th. And it continues to this day. They dust off these same people in the media Uh, every time an anniversary comes up use the exact same phrases uh it's become old hat now but uh we can see it taking place i can remember uh in the year of september 11th or in the few months that followed uh they had supposedly the bin laden confession video and uh, he's sitting there talking to his friends in the video a fox news host is narrating it on the broadcast that i saw and she's saying things like, see, that proves he was behind it because he just said it right there. And I remember thinking, like, well, I, I thought it was established that he did it. Why are you making this big deal of uh, cementing right. that in everyone's minds right now? Because I hadn't woken up to, to all this yet. So, um, But, no, they were trying to sell this to everybody. And you guys actually pointed out some really interesting uh, incidents that happened on the television airwaves that day in this paper. Now, the title of the paper is Triumph of the Official Narrative uh, and this documents how the erroneous official story has been imprinted in the minds of people to such an extent. And I know that propaganda and psyoping is a very complicated, in-depth process. Uh, but if you could tell our audience basically how this was done yeah. based on your study by by the system or whoever is putting this out there, how was it done to the American people in the world?
1: I can uh, I can do my best, Andy. Um, when I was preparing for this interview, I came up with ten elements of propaganda that we came up with. I can go through the ten if you like, or because um, I'm a list man, <laughs> I always make lists. Um, is that all right? That's fine. Okay. If it gets too boring, just <laughs> let me know. Um, so uh, when I call them ten elements of propaganda, I mean that. When we go through all this 70 hours of footage and we find out how the official narrative is established, we can see that these are some of the key elements. And I'll go through them initially rather quickly and then you can follow up on whatever you want. The first thing is, of course, to create tremendous shock and confusion and trauma. And that's what these events did. I mean, let's face it, you didn't have to be there on the ground. You just had to be watching television. And television, therefore, becomes a means for traumatizing people and for making people think at the lowest possible level. In other words, people don't tend to think critically and in, in a sophisticated way when they're in shock. They tend to think in a primitive way. Who is the enemy? You know, How can we get back at them? We're afraid. We're uh, upset. We're full of anxiety. So that's the first thing. And television was crucial. It basically uh, showed this attack across the whole world. The second thing is to quickly identify the perpetrator. Uh, and by that, I don't mean to really identify the perpetrator. I mean, get your selected perpetrator, your nominated perpetrator, the person you want to blame, and get their name out there quickly. So, for example, Fox News is <laughs> it's quite brilliant at this. 45 seconds after the second plane hits the South Tower, um, Osama bin Laden's name is mentioned. You know, 45 seconds, I mean, that's pretty good, John Scott, you know, that's the anchor who mentions it. And then from there on, of course, all day long, not only on Fox, but on most of the stations, Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden, and so on. And that's point three now, once you've mentioned the perpetrator, you endlessly repeat their name. you know, you can, you can make progress even when you use this uh, naming to doubt that it's the person. You can say, I think John Smith kidnapped that person. Um, uh, you know, I think it's John Smith. We're not sure it's John Smith, but the authorities say it's probably John Smith. The evidence points to John Smith. And even if it's not John Smith, it might be John Smith's brother, Jim Smith. <laughs> and pretty soon, by the end of the day, nobody can think of anything but John Smith. That's exactly what they did with the Osama bin Laden. Um, we uh, didn't even attempt to count all the mentions of Osama bin Laden on in these 70 hours, it would be a huge task, but we did look at 30 uh, of the particular mentions and discussions of them that we thought were most important on Fox News and on uh, uh, CNN, and you'll find those all in the appendices. Uh, point four in the in this is you know, they give all kinds of claims and rumors about this perpetrator. You know, if it was John Smith, it would be, well, you know, we have, well, looks like maybe credible news that John Smith, you know, a few weeks ago said he was going to do something really bad. So, you know, it was probably John Smith. The, the, all kinds of claims and rumors are made about Salim bin Laden. Typically it will be, you know, well, you know, I talked to intelligence sources, John, and, and they tell me that they're about 90% sure that this is a song in love. Why do you think that? Well, you know, they say it has a signature. <laughs> Claims and rumors, my friend. And of course, none of this has to be uh, real evidence. None of it is stuff you could use in a courtroom, but you keep doing it all day long. Uh, the fifth element is to u- make selective use of experts. So the newsrooms, the anchors will be visited by various experts. Now we have an expert in engineering. Now we have an expert in terrorism. And they have, of course, been selected carefully to support the official narrative. The sixth element is to normalize the abnormal. Uh, Make things look normal when they're not, actually. And one of the examples you can give is World Trade Seven, where the uh, captions late in the day said, World Trade 7 on fire may collapse. And it made it sound like if a building of light of this kind is on fire, we can all expect that it might collapse. This was absurd because as we learned later, no such building had ever collapsed before from fire. Um, But the caption you see is really important in making this look normal so that when the building comes down, people won't raise questions. In the present case, one of the main uses of this technique was in um, people saying, well, you know, this is a major operation. Look at this. They hijacked. successfully hijacked four planes simultaneously. They flew two of them. And, you know, all this was extremely sophisticated. Who could have done this? Oh, they quickly say, nobody but Osama bin Laden. It's actually a silly way to normalize the abnormal because Osama bin Laden was a minor figure with a relatively small group of people and few resources. When you compare it to any state in the world, this is a small non-state organization, which was apparently at that time based in one of the poorest countries in the world, Afghanistan. I can attest to how poor it was. I was there a few months before the attacks. It had, I think, the highest infant mortality rate in the world. It was just desperately poor. And yet, we're supposed to think that a guy with with some friends and a few million dollars um, in this poor country was able to do this attack. That's called normalizing the abnormal. It would be much more normal for this kind of attack to have been carried out by a major military and intelligence organization. Uh, the next is the use of logical errors, where helpful, and the most important one was um, the planes hit the buildings and the buildings came down. Therefore. Uh, the planes hitting the buildings caused the buildings to come down. That's a classic logical error, um, but it's very very powerful. But the eighth one is extremely important, tell gripping stories. We showed that there are two major stories that were told on uh, the various uh, news stations. One is the War on Terror story, that basically the savages have attacked the civilized world And um, there are eight specific elements, which I won't go into here, involved in this war on terror story. Very scary, very gripping. Um, And then the second story is uh, the Osama Bin Laden story. This is a horrible man, he did horrible things before, he's done it again. The the ninth, we're almost done, uh, says push aside actual courtroom worthy evidence, uh, and you can do it directly. By having a fake expert come on and say no, that's that's wrong. Uh, explosion were not necessary, or you can do it uh, indirectly by just telling such a good story that nobody is interested anymore in explosions. And then finally, you make great use of state authorities. So um, if you look at what what they did, the newsrooms, they brought one person after another, former you know, uh, secretary of defense, former. Uh, head of the State Department, you know, former head of intelligence. All these people are coming on and giving their opinion. And it's usually, well, it looks to me like Osama bin Laden. No evidence necessary, folks. These are credible state authorities. So those are the ten things I would say that we found. And, of course, we go into considerable detail in the area.
0: You know, it's interesting because it was such a different time back in two thousand and one than it is now, and a lot of people have become more vigilant against this kind of stuff. Now, maybe not everybody. and so and and I know a lot of uh, people in the truth movement. so maybe I I'm in a bubble to a certain extent from what uh, the ordinary people out there are doing. But it seems like a lot of people are more vigilant. Back then, people were more trusting of these officials, these experts that they bring on, and there, there was a, a, a lot more respect for them and what they have to say. So if they say, hey, this building is about to collapse, World Trade Center 7, you know, it doesn't make sense to you as to why it would collapse, but because they're saying it and saying it with such confidence, it's like, oh, that must be a normal thing. They're saying it, or, yeah. you know, this guy's saying Osama bin Laden did it. I mean, now it's gotten to the point where the pundits that they bring on television are so goofy I mean, people like uh, Philip Mudd, this guy, we called him on C-SPAN. I've heard him comment on other issues outside of 9-11. I mean, the guy seems to have mental issues when you you see him. And it's like, this is the best that the American taxpayer can uh, get for telling you why something is happening. Even if it's propaganda, it's not... Doesn't seem to work. Um, I think 9-11 kind of threw them off kilter in a certain way because they did not count on there being so many people caring this much about the, the dynamics of how buildings came down and uh, continuously pushing on this issue that it's caused them to misstep and to make some mistakes in trying to come against us um, because they just exposed themselves by doing that. Now, you mentioned um, John Scott. He was uh, a person that uh, had come up in, in some of the uh, commentary that you just made here, and in the article he assert- you mentioned how he assertively pushes the fire induced collapse scenario during a broadcast that morning. Can you talk about that a little bit
1: yeah he's, so he was the main uh, news anchor on fox fox news and uh, <clears throat> quite remarkable. I mean, in some ways, uh, did a good job, very fluent, very confident, you know, brings on his experts and so on. But basically, he's he's creating the official story from nothing, right from the beginning. And, uh, you know, so he'll have a reporter in the field that says, <laughs> John, I'm in a great cloud of dust. It was just a huge explosion. And then these buildings come up. And John and Scott has no problem ignoring the guy, basically, and say, thanks a lot, Mike. You know, and then just ignore everything about explosions. So uh, he'll then begin talking about planes. Well, you know, we know Osama bin Laden has planes and he likes suicide attacks. And we know that steel will melt if you get it hot enough. He's saying all this stuff with no particular provocation, he's coming up with the whole thing. He doesn't even need to to bring experts on to say it, he says it himself for the most part. The other news stations and so on are generally a little more... Sophisticated and indirect. They'll bring people on over a period of hours to say this stuff. And John Scott's the one who mentions the song in 45 seconds after the South Tower is hit. So um, I'm not saying the guy was realized everything what was going on in the day. You know, there's I, I'm not in a position to say who was a fully conscious participant. In many cases, I think people were given data sheets and they were they were told you know, these are your talking points, go for it, you know. And uh, so I have no idea who was fully part of the operation, but John Scott was an amazing example of somebody who was able to keep the explosion hypothesis off the screen. You know, as we found that in, uh, all the other, um, I think, 69 sources. The, the hypothesis that the buildings were brought down by explosions was mentioned at least once, either by an anchor or by an expert. It was there, especially in the morning of 9 11. It was present, it had to be dealt with. On Fox, it wasn't present, it didn't have to be dealt with. Scott just kept it off the screen. So, uh, uh, you know, when I talk about Fox as being exceptional, I'm not saying naughty Fox, everybody else did a good job. No, nobody did a good job, but Fox was more blatant.
0: Yeah, there are eras where certain networks take the lead—the the lead on being the most repugnant, and that was certainly Fox News's era for being the uh, the most repugnant when it came to nine eleven, the War of Terror is what I call it. Uh, you know, the wars that followed Iraq and everything else, and um, and yeah, I mean, they were the ones who most actively went after. Nine Eleven 11 truth activist to the point where my mom was watching bill o'reilly one night and she said i'm actually like scared right now listening to him because he was talking about Nine Eleven truthers as if they're uh you know as if they're neo-nazis or something in fact glenn beck uh was the person actually he took out the the lead even more than o'reilly because uh, remember there was a holocaust museum shooting a guy uh, went nuts at the holocaust museum uh shot at least one person. And Glenn Beck with no basis, nothing to back it up, just making this up off the top of his head says, this guy is a hero to the 9-11 truth community because he'll actually do something. So it was a deliberate attempt to try to associate us with some a murderous uh, rampage that happened that had absolutely nothing to do with the 9-11 truth movement. And so these people will just outright lie. And you yep. definitely got to watch out for people that just talk off the you know top of their head and they have really have no clue what they're saying. I, mean, I I had a friend like this in high school and it was kind of funny. I mean, you know, he'd be like, Oh, yeah, you know, you're allowed to go at least 10 miles over the speed limit. They allow that. <laughs> and Even say it with such authority, he'd be like, Well, okay, he says it there, and you know, but there's no truth to that. And then you'd kind of press him and ask him, you was know, like, you know, about the details, and you'd say, Well, it probably is, and then it would sort of break down over time. It's like, well, I don't know, but I would assume you could. Well, that's what the news reporters are like you know they just make they'll just say things with such authority they're trained to do that and you you think well this guy must know what he's talking about and um he really doesn't um now in the article too you talked about the observation of uh, observations of cnbc's mark haynes on the morning of 9 11. they seem to kind of get into it deep regarding early uh talk of third explosions and such can you uh, get into that
1: i can uh, because, by the way, I think we all had friends like that in the school who are so confident about their, you know, and they're not scary until they become a news anchor. <laughs> and they're scary. Um, yeah, I don't want to uh, paint all the media broadly as uh, fools or villains, because uh, one of the things I noticed years ago when I began looking is that there were some uh, reporters on the ground who seemed determined to report what they actually witnessed. There, after all, you know, we found 36 reporters who uh, talked about explosions when buildings came down. That's a lot of people. And the, the reporters on the ground are like the eyes and ears of, of uh, a news organization. And then the newsroom is supposed to be the brain of the organization where they receive those reports and they try and figure out what's actually going on. And there were some news anchors who seemed determined to try and do a good job. So Mark Haynes um, of uh, CNBC was one, them, and uh, and frankly, uh, initially at least, Aaron Brown of CNN was another. There were a few others, Peter Jennings and, and so on uh, that we mentioned. But, Let me just quote uh, some of the things that Mark Haynes said after the buildings came down. He's looking at footage of the collapse of uh, the South Tower, but here you see an enormous explosion about midway up in the South Tower, and the entire structure collapses. It just disappears. Now that's interesting from a forensic point of view. The explosion that leveled the south tower came, it seemed, roughly halfway up, and yet it took the entire tower out. And then he goes on to say this, I don't think, I think we're safe here. I think we're on safe ground. This was clearly the way the structure is collapsing. This was the result of something that was planned. This is not, it's not accidental that the first tower just happened to collapse and then the second tower just happened to collapse in exactly the same way. How they accomplished this. We don't know. But clearly this is what they wanted to accomplish. Now when you have a Mark Haynes saying this, and when you have uh, Jennings and Rather talking about how this looks like uh, uh, an an implosion, a planned implosion, and when you have Aaron Brown saying, whoa, wait a minute, this was a huge explosion, and Aaron Brown is standing on the roof of the building watching this as it happens, so he's actually an eyewitness, Uh, then what are you going to do? From the propaganda point of view. What you you have to do is find a way to domesticate these people to take the sting out of what they're saying, to silence them, and that's what we observe happening.
0: Well, yeah, and I don't think it's that hard when there's somebody that is on television, they're the face of uh, the network, and all they have to do is get a different script, and they'll probably read that. I think people did have initial reactions because, you know, something explodes in front of you, especially something as big as the World Trade Center towers. You're going to uh, you're going to react, and you're going to be very honest in the first couple of moments after it happens. But after a while, once the dust settles and uh, they start cementing that official story in your minds, uh, then those people are just going to go along to get along. That's what they're on TV to do—to basically do a job, which is propagandizing us. Um, yeah, and at one point in uh, in the CNN reported third explosions right in their news crawler at the
1: bottom. That's true. Uh, you have that in a number of stations. Um, I, I don't have it here, but basically you'll have something, the news crawl along the bottom of the screen, say something like, a uh, huge explosion brings down World Trade Center, that kind of thing. Uh, again, this is, this is naive people trying to do their job. That's how I interpret it. And most of this happens in the morning of 9-11. You know, the, the uh, anchor people trying to say, I don't understand how that building came down. You know, and Aaron Brown going to his reporters in the field and saying, you know, I, I, we're trying to figure out whether this was just because the planes hit the buildings or whether there were separate explosions that brought these towers down. What do you think? What did you see? And it's, it's brilliant when he when he does that, it's not brilliant. I mean, it's just what any anchor should do, but I mean, in the context of what else was going on, it looks brilliant. And then the people in the field will say things like, well, the whole top of the building just blew up. I was right there, I saw it. So this is all going on in the morning of nine eleven, and it's very important to have this information to record this. So we, you know, we dug it up, we put it out there. But then of course, The question comes up, how on earth in that case can all this eyewitness evidence be shunted aside so that in the afternoon and evening the official narrative is woven uh, convincingly in front of uh, the American public and the whole world? So that's the next thing that you have to perceive going on.
0: Yeah, well, I mean they, they've overlooked a lot of observable facts, not just from the day of, but from what everything AE nine eleven truth has brought up over the years, problems in NIST report. And of course they just pretend that it's uh, that it's not a big deal. That uh, what you know, what gets pointed out here, missing structural features, and incorrect measurements is not a big enough deal to do anything with it. And that's what they do with the eyewitnesses on the ground that day. People reporting explosions, people reporting molten metal, Uh, the news reports uh, with the reporters initially saying it looks like a controlled implosion. None of that makes a difference because they had experts on the scene within hours telling you what exactly happened. And of course there is no way to know exactly what happened inside the towers on the day of September 11th. It's not a, a long enough time to make any kind of assessment um, other than just initial speculation, so there's no way that the official story could have even existed. Now, I just want to know, to your knowledge, has anyone from the media come out and discuss publicly the discrepancies in their initial assessments and what they settled on later?
1: Um. Yeah, I don't have a very good answer for that right now. I, I know that Aaron Brown, on the major anniversary, one of the anniversaries of nine eleven, expressed his feeling of guilt and inadequacy. Um, he said, I sh- it never even occurred to me that those entire buildings could have come down that way. I was unprepared. I was not adequate to the job as news anchor." and therefore I kept looking and saying, what happened, what happened, are those buildings still there? So he's actually expressing, he's confessing that he wasn't adequate as a news anchor when that was precisely the moment when he was adequate as a news anchor. He was saying to the public, I don't know what just happened, I'm gonna try and figure out. So there's an example of somebody actually going in the opposite direction to what we would like and I've seen other examples, but I can't think of them offhand, where people on the day itself were talking confidently about explosions and later on did a public confession on TV, well, I was obviously wrong. I was later proven to be wrong. And, and firefighters did that too, by the way. Some of them said clearly, well, we all thought those buildings had been blown up. I mean, that's what it looked like to us, and that's what it sounded like. Of course, later we were proved wrong. That's what they were told. They were told they were proved wrong, but they weren't given any evidence. So, sorry, that's not not a fully adequate answer, but this is the kind of thing we find.
0: No, that that brings up a great point. I mean, people need to stop apologizing out there. Um, You know, they play on everybody's insecurities that, you know, your initial reaction, what you thought at that moment, uh, when somebody comes out and tells you that it was different without any proof or... (laughs) or anything like that and then you feel this need to explain yourself to i don't know what some faceless judge up up there you know these people that uh, make the agendas don't apologize stop apologizing out there you don't have anyone to apologize to um, actually it's a technique because when they can't get you on the facts and they can't, you know, they're not tougher than you or they're, they they can not get you on the facts. Then what they do is they want to act like you're a bad guy for, uh, for having the facts over them or, or disagreeing with them and get you to, uh, get you to apologize and, uh, feel bad about yourself. Don't do that. Don't do that. Stop apologizing. Stand by and say, look, it sounded like an explosion to me. I said it, you don't like it tough
1: Yeah.
0: and, um, and see what happens, you know?
1: Exactly, I agree, Um, and there were, when I went through the firefighters' reports, uh, there were certainly some people who did these little retractions. I guess we were proven wrong, but there were also a lot of people who didn't, you know, and I was very impressed by those people. A guy would say, well, I was thrown 40 feet through the air by the explosion, you know, or I was standing right in front of the tower and watched it come down, boom, 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 with a series of explosions, and I'm impressed by those people. Now, I don't know where they are today. Um, I made a few efforts to contact firefighters, and, and, and I didn't get anywhere. And, and I think they're afraid of their jobs, they're afraid of their pensions, they're, you know, and some of them are sick, a lot of them are sick from breathing that stuff in. You know, but I, uh, I'm impressed by those who didn't retract their testimony. And I think you're right, you know, there's it's nothing more pathetic, especially with reporters, than watching them publicly humiliate themselves by saying, oh, I guess I got that wrong. No, no, you used your senses. That's what you were supposed to do, you know? So I agree with you.
0: Yeah, you know, it's... Um, I think you need some very insecure people to do that kind of job. And of course, if you're getting that kind of money too, that uh, that probably plays into it. Now, you have a section here in this, uh, uh, this paper titled How the Story Suited the U.S. Temperament. And I think that that title states it all, and in my, in my uh, view, how, how they took advantage of how everybody felt. It was the entire PSYOP, uh rolled up right, in, right uh, into one there. So talk about that. How did the story suit the U.S. temperament on that
1: day? Well, I mean, it's not just the U.S., but certainly the U.S. Uh, has a history of uh, many uh, stories of other people and other nations being aggressive and being guilty of aggression. Um, but it's never the United States that does aggression. Even though, uh, yeah, there's a wonderful book came out decades ago, uh, 180 landings of U.S. Marines. And I remember reading it when I was young, and thinking, what's that? (laughs) The guy who wrote it is proud of the fact that the U.S. Marines landed on 180 (laughs) different places to uh, force them to, you know, go along with United Fruit or whatever (laughs) whatever it was. Uh, And it was only later that imperialism became unpopular and and became an embarrassing book. (laughs) So I mean the US has been aggressing all over the place um, since the beginning of the Republic, but it's not part of the national narrative and in fact you know there's an old version of the Star Spangled Banner and uh, I haven't looked at it recently but it contains the line their blood will wipe out their foul footsteps pollution. Now. Who's foul footsteps? Well, the British. At that point, it was the British. You know, British soldiers had dared to set their their uh, polluted feet <laughs> on the sacred homeland. And the only way to wash away that stain is blood. This is extremely primitive stuff. This is reptilian backbrain, but you often find it in national anthems. The Marseillaise, the French national anthem, is terrible that way. You know, um, how, does it, how do they put it? Um, we will fertilize our fields with the invader's blood. <laughs> this really deep stuff. Uh, I don't mean it's rationally sophisticated, but I mean it's deeply put in our brains. So what is? how does that apply to 9-11? Well, their blood will wipe out their foul footsteps pollution. These terrible um, Muslims from another part of the world who are obviously savage and not fully human And Ehud Barak almost says it in those terms uh, on BBC on the day of 9-11. You know, obviously they polluted our nation by coming over here and doing this, so only blood will wipe that out. So we're going to call this an act of war. We're going to start killing people, even if they had nothing to do with this. Um, And and again, that that was said. There's one of these speakers that I can't remember if it's CNN or Fox brings on, and he says, you know, we can't just go after those who were involved in this, we have to go after other people who we consider terrorists too. We're going to have to kill a few people here, um, you know, even if they had nothing to do with 9-11. And it's all about blood, you know, and, and and they're determined to say this act was an act of war and therefore uh, we need to go to war. Even though, again, I said normalizing the, the, sorry, normalizing the abnormal, nor, normally you would not say An attack by a small non-state organization is an act of war. You would only call it an act of war if a state had attacked you. So normally you would expect to deal with this through law, international law, U.S. domestic law. There were lots of laws that could have been used. But no, we're going to call it an act of war. We're going to go to war, not just with Al-Qaeda, but with a whole bunch of states. We're going to attack people. We're going to bomb people, you know. So this, what I'm trying to say here is the theme that other people are aggressive, but the U.S. is not, was so firmly uh, entrenched in the U.S. consciousness. Germany in World War I, aggression. Germany in World War II, aggression. Communist, aggression. You know, Gulf of Tonkin, an example of communist aggression. Japanese aggression in Pearl Harbor. We won't talk about the U.S. burning down. How many cities? In Japan, and in dropping two nuclear, none of that is aggression, you see. So according to the U.S. national consciousness, other people aggress or commit aggression. The United States does not. So so we've got a ready-made mindset to say, well, there are these these half-human, semi-human extremists way over there have come and they've committed aggression against us. So then, of course, we have to raise the righteous sword of retribution, and uh, that's the kind of thing we're talking about there.
0: Yeah, well, every U.S. war is like a Death Wish movie, apparently, is what I learned growing up. I mean, we're just minding our own business, and then some goons attack us, and we got to go exact some revenge. And uh, blow some things up in the process of doing it. Of course, that is not the reality. Typically, a lot of times things are a gray area. But as I've been learning more and more about U.S. history over the years, um, you know, I think a lot of it is imperialist uh, imperialist desires and such. And uh, that's you know, and that's any kind of large world power. There's many of them throughout history. And uh, you bring these problems onto yourself a lot of times, but in the case of September 11th, I mean, we know the buildings were brought down in demolition, so that takes it to a whole nother level. I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit. Um, I was thinking about this last night after reading your article, you know, had there been more outspoken structural engineers, let's say, or people in the building trades profession, on the week of 9-11, not pointing a finger, not saying, oh, you know, the Bush administration did this or anything like that, but publicly challenging the narrative just of what happened to the towers on, on that day. And again, I'm saying like on the day or the week of 9-11 saying, you yeah, know, I don't think that's right. I think there must've been bombs in there. They should be investigating for that. Um, do you think the official t- story would have had more of a, a more difficult time solidifying in the public's consciousness? Had uh, people been willing to raise these questions the week it happened?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I'm very impressed by those architects and engineers who signed on um, to 9-11, sorry, the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. But um, in a way you could say too little too late, um, if there had been some kind of network or organization that could have immediately started giving highly credible, highly legitimate statements right away. But this needs to be investigated, we're not so sure this was caused by planes hitting the buildings. They wouldn't have even had, they wouldn't have had to pretend they knew what happened. They would have simply said, this is rush to judgment. You don't have the evidence for what you're saying there. Um, Now, I look at, for example, the issue of nuclear war. I was uh, an anti-nuclear activist for many years, and uh, physicians aren't particularly known for being activists. But a, a group of them decided they were being asked to collaborate with nuclear war. They were being they were being told to make to tell the public everything was okay. We will take care of you after nuclear war, and they said that's BS. We won't be there to take care of anybody, and we're going to say so. So they formed international physicians for the prevention of nuclear war, and they got really active and really vocal. And they talked to world leaders, and they talked to the public, and they ended up getting the Nobel Peace Prize. And I've often wished that architects and engineers would do the same thing. would get organized and say, you know, we're gonna to talk to leaders, we're also gonna to talk to the public. Uh, I mean, I know this is happening to some extent, and you're, the architects and engineers organization is doing a great job but come on you know if this could be escalated this could, it's not too late this could still make a big big difference
0: yeah and and if some new event happens let's say another 9 11 style event i mean i think the best thing to do is not point a finger right away unless you got some kind of smack dab proof at at who actually did it uh but if there's technical questions raise them don't worry about it start because what it'll do is it'll cast more doubt on the story that they're trying to sell us in the end and it'll make it harder for them to uh to sell it to all the people at home um and it'll have the controversy existing right from the get-go and if you just you know keep any kind of uh Uh, finger pointing out of it unless you got some kind of real hardcore proof then you can't be accused of having a political agenda or anything like that and it'll make it more difficult for the bad guys and yeah i mean i've always believed in in having separate like you know when you don't like something when you don't like some institution form your own and make that the new standard and maybe we need to be doing that with some of these uh these big organizations in the building trades industry. Um, now have you ever considered looking at foreign media coverage of 9/11 like in some cases you would probably need some native speakers of languages and such but uh, you know to do the research and watching but there may be some observations or reports that they would pick up on has that ever uh, crossed your mind to uh, look into those ones
1: yeah I'd love to but I may not be around long enough to do it you know I'm um, I'm not given too, too many months to be on this earth. Um, so I will have to ask others to do it. It's worth doing, it's, it's important. But one of the reasons we stuck with U.S. coverage is because that's where the eyewitnesses are, that's where the people were on the ground. Most of the foreign news organizations that I've looked at covered it by kind of using as much of the U.S. footage as they possibly could, because they didn't have any uh, alternative information. Like if you look on BBC, some of the news anchors didn't even know what the World Trade Center was. They were hopelessly out of their league, and and so they were just trying to play catch up. Um, <clears throat> now, of course, what would be interesting, I think, in foreign news coverage would not be the um, the eyes and ears uh, of the reporters on the ground. It would be the brain. It would be what's happening in the newsroom. That would be interesting. How are they putting it together? What are they saying? Are they are they are are any of them independent? of the U.S. newsrooms, or are they just repeating what they hear? You know, like, I would love to look at Malaysian uh, news coverage, because one of the former prime ministers of Malaysia knows perfectly well 9-11 is an inside job. I would like to know what Iranian uh, TV looked like, because one of their leaders has come out and said it was an inside job. Uh, I would like to know what Cuban TV (laughs) said, because Fidel Castro eventually said this was an inside job and Venezuelan TV, you know, this could perhaps be done if you could find this coverage, but I won't be the one to do it, so um, let's throw the torch to those who have the same kind of, I don't know, obsessive patience (laughs) Uh, that Ted and I exhibited in this article.
0: Well, it's very fascinating to sit back and watch that from years ago. And if anybody out there is a native uh, language, native speaker of any of the languages of the countries that were just listed there, then come forward and we'll talk about it. We'll see how we can get our hands on that coverage. I'm pretty good at finding things and get my hands on things Mm -hmm. when I want to. So uh, maybe we can make that happen. Um, So, you know, right now, we have September 11th, we can do a lot of hindsight thinking about what should have been done, but keeping in mind that people on the day of September 11th only knew what they knew, and they were only knowing what they experienced that day, either from the newsroom or on the streets, what were some of the questions that should have been asked by the faces on TV that day?
1: Uh, Faces on TV, meaning the experts and and so on in the newsroom,
0: yeah, anybody with any kinds of doubts or uh, just trying to figure out what happened, what were the questions that they should have been asking the experts that were sitting across from them trying to push the officials? Uh, so we're mainly talking
1: about the news anchors. Right. Yeah. Well, I would have. I, I would say they should have done what Mark Haynes and Aaron Brown and Peter Jennings did early in the day, but they should have kept it up and they should have been very critical and quizzical. And, um, You know, every now and then you'll find the news anchor kind of wincing in embarrassment at what they're being told to say. You know, even Judy Woodruff on CNN, who on the whole was not good on the day, but she says at one point, you know, they're telling us now it's probably Osama bin Laden, and she kind of goes, sorry, we don't really have any evidence yet, (laughs) that's the best we can do. So, of course, you know, a, a news anchor would have insisted on, you know, what's your evidence for that? If you don't have any, then uh, we're not going to make any conclusions yet, and at its best, at its best, Darren Brown says that. You know, some so-called expert will go on and on about why it has to be Osama, because A, B, C, D, all these different things, is very bad, he lies a lot, on and on. And Brown, you know, at the end of it all will say, thank you very much for that, but of course, just to remind our viewers, we don't know who did it yet. So, you know, he kept it up for a while, and finally they, they really kind of clamped down on him, because it was his first day on the job on CNN, and, and you can see them kind of telling him to shut up. Oh, that was his first day on the job?
0: Yeah, I think was with,
1: with CNN. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's probably why he wasn't fully trained and domesticated. <laughs> He's just standing on the roof looking, you know, and, and he can't figure out what the hell <laughs> it's going
0: really good yeah like a stress dream yeah but uh so shifting gears i want to ask you this we got about 10 minutes left and i want to make sure you have time for a uh, a good long answer if you if you have that um but we had a bulletin go out asking people why is nine eleven still important to you and I, I this was wildly successful we had so many people respond to it i'm collecting answers now from uh anyone that I know in the 9-11 truth movement, I may put this in a, to a volume at some point, but uh, tell our audience, 21 years later, old, 9-11 is old enough to buy a beer, if it was a person, uh, why is 9-11 still important to you? Oh, you
1: know, thanks for asking that. I didn't respond to that question because I figured that i have been working for so many years. <laughs> uh, my question, my answer would be somehow implicit. Um, let me put it in a somewhat technical way and then maybe it'll evolve into a more personal answer you know I grew up during the Cold War and this is what I call a global conflict framework in other words everybody in the world was supposed to accept that this is the way the world had to be there would be communists and anti-communists and they would you know they would just have conflicts all over the place and spend huge amounts of money on Weapons and potentially blow up the world uh, at the end of it. I mean, if you look at some of the actual plans, like Operation Sizzle, that U.S. Uh, intelligence and military had had developed shortly after World War II to c- commit uh, an, an unprovoked attack on the Soviet Union that would have made World War II look like a garden party. Um, you know, this is, this is what we were. We were brought up to think this is the way it is, is the way it has to be, there's no alternative. You know, we're good guys, but really, you can't argue with these communists. And I think it was a horrendous, terrible, dangerous set of deceptions. Finally, the the Cold War started to collapse as the Soviet Union collapsed. And and guess what? Uh, We were told we would, you know, have all this money that had been spent on weapons that now could be used for socially useful purposes. And almost immediately, 9-11 happened. And to replace the the Cold War, a new global conflict framework was immediately erected called the War on Terror, and military spending was now permitted to go up again. Now we were told that, and there's a whole string of fake terrorist events that happened in the US and Canada after that to reinforce in people's mind that, you know, not only are these dangerous people abroad, but you know, they've infected our society. They're here, you know, they're here among us and they can break out into extremism mm-hmm. <laughs> at any moment. And, um, so we have to curtail our civil liberties and, and we have to get ready for more conflict, more military spending and this old, old, primitive institution called war, which I've spent my adult life studying and opposing. This ancient primitive system where you demonize the other and you kill all kinds of innocent people. This is dragged out again we're supposed to get on our little wooden hobby horses again and, and run off to war waving swords um, because after all, look at 9-11. This was a terrible thing. Uh, I remember um, being there when the former prime minister of Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, said this is the worst disaster to happen. I think he said, since the Second World War, which has set nations against each other, divided the world, made us spend useless money on weapons. So that's what 9-11 did, that's what we permitted it to do. And um, in a way, this is still going on. Whole nations devastated in the Middle East. Um, Now the world faces genuine problems, some of them uh, having to do with our distorted relationship to the natural world. You know, we're destroying so much of nature, we could easily destroy ourselves. Does war help us humanely solve that problem? No. This primitive system called war can't solve a damn thing. And yet here we are, especially with the Ukrainian situation, riding off in a little hobby person again, refusing to face the real problems that the world uh, is challenged by, and instead getting into we're good and they're bad and and we're going to, you know, threaten with, to use nuclear weapons, all this BS again, which I went through for so much of my life, and it's appalling for me to see it again. And um, so yeah, 9-11 was a war trigger, it was used <coughs> to revitalize this primitive barbaric system called war, and, and, and war has not unleashed since that time.
0: Well stated. And uh, I would be happy to see all the drama end or at least taper down enough so that people can go on with their lives and worry about uh, doing what they want to do. That's what we're all on this planet to do. So the article, folks, uh, it's, it's going to come out. It's called Triumph of the Official Narrative. Uh, It's going to be at ae911truth.org. Graham McQueen here wrote it with Ted Walter, so look out for that. But, Graham, thank you so much for coming on the show, not just this time, but all the other times you've been on in the past when we were just audio. And thank you for all your great work.
1: Thank you so much, Andy. You're doing such crucial work. Hope to see you again.
0: All right folks, there you go another 911 freefall. Remember if you have any suggestions on how to improve the show, you can go to 911freefall.com or ae911truth.org, but for my part I'm Andy Steele saying we'll see you next week. Bye bye.